Meerkat was phenomenal, and she has always, always was mm-hmm. associated with running a meeting. And uh, so she was able to get to a good result. And needless to say, aesthetics and what the bridge looked like was very important to her. But the interesting thing about that process to me is how aesthetics and function merged mm-hmm. into the right solution for the right place in the region. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I talk with Neil McFarlane, outgoing general manager at TriMet. Neil is also TriMet's former Capital Projects Executive Director. 27 years, I've mentioned to others, I feel like sometimes the luckiest person in the world in my field to have been placed at TriMet in 1991, yeah. right upon this sort of magnificent expansion of our rail and bus system that we've been a part of really over all of those 27 years. So the rail projects in particular have been one of the few sorts of public works projects that have really changed the landscape of our city and Mm -hmm. the way that we all use our city and think about our city. So it's been just remarkable to be a part of that overall. Now we should let the listeners know that I have a history at TriMet. I worked there for six years, first as PIO, public information officer, and then in internal communications. And part of my time there was... When you were Capital Projects Executive Director, right, and this was when things were getting going on the Green Line, yes, and Wes, yes, and so it was a really busy time. You were Capital Projects Executive Director for a dozen years or so. I was, and uh, it was a terrific experience, of course. Um, so I was able to oversee, as a Capital Projects Director, the construction of the Yellow Line, mm-hmm. the Red Line the Green Line, and that included the 5th and 6th Avenue expansion of light rail. Many people don't realize that that lovely mall was originally a bus mall, and it was in 2009 that that project opened light rail on the the Portland Transit Mall, which I think was also transformative in many ways. What you begin to see with all of that is just the system providing a whole different series of connections than were possible before. I'm very proud to have been part of that. But obviously, it's a huge team at TriMet that pulls these things off with enormous help from all of our regional partners, whether that be at Metro, ODOT, City of Portland, all the counties and jurisdictions all have been really instrumental in making these projects happen. That was eye-opening for me. I came from radio, and my only real job, quotation marks, out of radio was working at TriMet. And that was eye-opening for me to be able to see all the entities involved and seeing where the rail lines were going to go before construction even happened. And so to see it before it happened and then to see it after, you realize what a huge undertaking that is. Typically, we spend much more time planning, engineering, thinking, reviewing with the many stakeholders involved in these projects um, a lot more time spent in that part of the process mm-hmm. than in actual hard engineering and construction. Definitely. Uh, so they have a long ramp-up. Generally, <laughs> I sort of just think about 10 years of planning on each of the lines that you can 
typically be designed and constructed in something on the order of four. There's a lot of conversations that happen. So let's take a step back. So many people in Portland now have been here 5, 10, 15, even 20 years. TriMet's always just been there. It's been a fabric of the community. They don't know about the history of it. So let's step back. Certainly Rose City Transit was in many ways the beginning of bus service. Tell us a little bit about the history of Rose City Transit. Well, so one of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize is that transit's always been really incredibly important and formative to Portland. Matter of fact, our peak ridership ever was during World War II Mm. when gasoline and rubber and vehicles were all tightly rationed. The uh, importance of the transit system really grew. Matter of fact, our our peak ridership, I think, was somewhere around 165 million rides a year. And that was on the different systems that then ultimately began to deteriorate in the 50s and 60s to the point that that ridership dropped to, I think it was around 16 million or so. So it, you know, dropped by uh, many fold. And these were private companies at the time. Obviously, when the ridership fell so far and frankly so fast, uh, basically because of the competition of the automobile at the Mm -hmm. time, it really drove those companies to bankruptcy. And so this was happening not just in Portland, but frankly all over the country. Indeed, in the early 60s, the federal government passed the Urban Mass Transportation Act. Mm -hmm. Our federal funding agency, now known as the Federal Transit Administration, was known as the Urban Mass Transportation Administration. And they began to support jurisdictions beginning to buy out those bankrupt private companies to provide service to Mm -hmm. their communities. In Portland, that was a little bit of a different story or the specific story about Portland is that at the time Mayor Terry Shrunk actually appointed a citizens committee largely led by our downtown business community at the time to study mass transit and they went to the legislature with a bill. That was 1969. 1969 and in March of 1969 I believe it was Mm -hmm. the legislature actually approved a bill that allowed the establishment of a Tri-County Transportation District. Hence was born the Tri-County Transportation District of Oregon, otherwise known as TriMet. Right. That was actually effectuated by an ordinance of the Portland City Council in, uh, I believe it was November or fall of Mm -hmm. uh, 69. uh, And TriMet began operating in uh, December of 69, taking on the assets and the lines and the buses that were owned prior by Rose City Transit. TriMet also acquired some other smaller companies Mm -hmm. uh, as part of its system. And it was funded by an unusual tax, which we now have come to uh, sort of understand as one of the key funding elements of our transportation system in the Portland metropolitan area, which is a payroll tax. And that's actually paid by employers on gross payroll. I believe that initial tax was about five-tenths of a percent It varied, I think, a few years later. The board actually reduced that rate, and it's been adjusting ever since uh, as the community's uh, desire for more transit has been uh, evidence. And we were talking about this before we turned on the microphones. That makes TriMet uh, approaching its 49th birthday. Yes. uh, Looking very well as we approach our 50th, which uh, there's some nice synergy there. Kink is just a little (laughs) bit ahead (laughs) of us. Just a little bit. uh, More mature, I'll put it that way. And so that was 1969 when TriMet became TriMet, and uh, it was just buses for many years. 
At what point, and it had, I would imagine it had to have happened because of urban growth boundary and uh, Powell not becoming a freeway, you know, how the city became. Um, at what point was there discussion about light rail? Because Portland was the first West Coast light rail. Is that right? Second, second. actually. Okay. But that also means about the <coughs> second, if you will, new generation light rail system in the country. The first was San Diego. San Diego. That actually started a line between the Mexican border and downtown San Diego on an existing rail line. But that's an interesting story. You you uh, wove together very quickly some of those really important elements. Right. Like I the, know. I really condensed it. <laughs> <laughs> like the withdrawal of the Mount Hood Freeway, which right. essentially paralleled Powell. What that did was actually, based on some other congressional work, allow the region to take the value that would have gone into that freeway and, frankly, move that around to road projects or transit projects. And one of the projects that was funded out of that was the first Banfield light rail project between downtown Portland and Gresham. That was really began to be planned in the late 70s, early 80s, right about the same time, frankly, that that freeway withdrawal struggle was going on. Again, relatively recent, although I would tell you as the general (laughs) manager today, some of those uh, what seems like recent in the life of a city is uh, beginning to wear out here and there, which is one of the future challenges. More about that later. Right. I want to get on rail projects in a second. One other big thing that any longtime resident of Portland knows about is Fairless Square. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1975, Fairless Square happened. It was it was an idea that sprang from the issues of pollution, yes. trying to reduce these short trips that people would take in their cars downtown. And, and there's that, but there's also the, uh, I was trying to remember last night, I lived in Northwest and I would take the bus home and on Fairless Square on the bus lines, you would have the purple rain, the red fish, and all those signs that people, again, might remember fondly from uh, from the, well, I, the, for me, it would have been the 90s, but it was in the 80s as well. Yeah, and I, uh, I, I moved to Portland in 1980. <laughs> Best move I ever made, that's for sure. But um, it, clearly, there were some iconic elements about the old transit mall mm-hmm. uh, that sort of divided up the system into these... Um, Umbrella. Right, the umbrella, uh, the, the, umbrella food, the beaver. The fish, yeah, beaver, right. We found over time, though, that for new residents, that was just confusing. <laughs> like, what did the, why, why is that beaver on that bus stop? Nobody could quite figure it out. No. Is that where OSU uh, graduates go? Right, where um, do I go? Uh, we've obviously developed a new graphic since then. But the important thing, and I think was one of the key early projects was the transit mall reconstruction and Mm -hmm. that was done as really a feature of the downtown plan that the city adopted in the late 70s and that was a really formative plan it included the improvements to waterfront park it included the high density corridor being around fifth and sixth in downtown portland so that it was very close and adjacent to public transit uh, and originally, that was a bus-only mall, right. as you saw. So that was a very formative project. And I think it led to a lot of people thinking about how can public transit be f- transformative in places beyond even downtown Portland. So I think I think that was very important for that reason. And it sort of gave us the art of the possible. Related to Fairless Square, you're right. It was really initial targeted response to building ridership, eliminating short-term trips, because we had some t- 
terrible carbon monoxide hotspots right. in downtown Portland at that time. Over the years, pollution reduction equipment on vehicles themselves has reduced that, together with our transit-related strategies, biking strategies, walking strategies mm-hmm. that we put in place. So it has become less of an issue, uh, frankly, in downtown Portland over exactly. time. All right, so now let's go back to the rail projects. We talked about how those formulated and how the ideas came, particularly with the Mount Hood Freeway and the funding from the federal government for that. Planning for the first one, it was the Gresham to Portland. Uh, It wasn't really known as the Blue Line at that point. That's correct. And that was 1980 when TriMet got approval for the funds to build that. That's right. The project actually was... um pretty unique, even though I know that it was the second uh, major rail line in the 48 states, it was a relatively new technology. And so there was a lot of innovation just associated with getting that um, 14 to 15 miles of uh, Mm -hmm. rail line in place. A lot of things were done really right, a few things weren't, uh, and we began to correct that over time. But I would also say that there was uh, a lot of support from the city of Portland from our regional government. It started off as CRAG, ended up as Metro, uh, all leading to, I think, a phenomenal uh, opening in 1986, which was really transformative. For those of us who were there, we can remember getting very close to our neighbors on light rail trains (laughs) um, on that opening day. But it was really a phenomenal success from really the day it opened. So you brought something up. Uh, what do you think or what has the experience been that were the, I don't want to say mistakes, but w- what was corrected? What improvements were made? What lessons learned from that rail line that you took to the other ones? Well, so the next rail line was, of course, the uh, Blue Line West, right. or we called it the West Side Light Rail Project at the time. And you're beginning to get the terminologies. We have projects, and then when we move into service, we actually give it a color. Right. Uh, so... One of the key things that we innovated on the Blue Line West was the first low-floor light rail cars Mm -hmm. in North America. So many people will remember the original Banfield had wayside lifts for those in mobility devices. It was pretty darn awkward. Somebody in a wheelchair, for example, had to roll into a, a bit of a cage, a little mini elevator. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were raised when the car came. Uh, bridge plate bridged over the stairs and allowed um, the mobility device move on the car. So that took a lot of time uh, and it was I think not exhibiting the kind of welcome that we want the transit system to have for people with disabilities. So we thought there had to be a better way and innovated frankly for the first time in North America uh, low floor light rail vehicles. Those are now known, for those who know our fleet, as type two <laughs> and three and four and five cars are all <laughs> uh, light rail vehicles that we have since, um, uh, you know, continued to innovate with. And I think what's important about that is it really allowed the system to operate uh, more timely. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have long stops to operate the, this equipment. It also made it much more welcoming, not just for people on mobility devices, but for really for everybody, whether right. you're a mom with a stroller or somebody with a bag of groceries, Absolutely. it's much easier. So um, I think that was one of the key innovations that came about and sort of begins to describe, I think, what has been TriMet's approach of really trying with every project improving 
the product uh, for the customer that we ultimately want to serve, but also working on the process of delivering the project so that they, frankly, were less impactful and more, more in line with the expectations of the community. Work for everybody. So 1986, uh, the Gresham to Portland, Portland to Gresham opens. 1993 construction begins on West Side. Yes. Uh, with a, a big project, there was some tunneling going on. There was a uh, <laughs> there was a lot of tunneling, and I was uh, I, of course I came to TriMet 1991 mm-hmm. basically to uh, help jumpstart the West Side Light Rail project, and so uh, I was very intimately involved with Tuck Wilson, Tom Walsh, others mm-hmm. who had a lot to do with uh, moving that project along together with Earl Blumenauer and many other leaders in our community. But yes, we have a three-mile tunnel now through the West Hills. And uh, I would tell you that of the challenges that I've seen and faced, that may have been <laughs> one of the biggest. I can only imagine. And what was the, what was the reaction to citizens when they heard there was going to be a three-mile tunnel through the West Hills? Well, you know, it was a great debate moving into the project because I think the other alignment would have been really very parallel to Sunset Highway and, Mm -hmm. for example, would have had a zoo stop real near the exit that currently is on Highway 26 toward the zoo. And I think in general, though, there was great excitement about the tunnel. Something uh, new, something different. Something new and different. Um, And obviously, I think it was, in retrospect, uh, a good decision. But one of the factors was there were a lot of neighbors to that canyon Mm -hmm. that just did not want to see all that infrastructure on the surface. So there are a whole series of reasons. But I think, to a large extent, the other thing that's happened with that is it's during winter weather, for example, (laughs) we know it doesn't snow in a tunnel. So that's a very good thing. (laughs) All right, so then uh, that 18-mile extension, construction starts in 93, it opens in 80, uh, 98, and it's now the blue line. That's right. 33 miles. Then moving forward, now now you're on, uh, 1999, you were uh, executive director at that point. I was. Yes, right. just into a year. Yep. Um, and this was pretty innovative as well, train to plane. First train to plane on the West Coast. Right. Uh, so the red line now, as we know it, was a really innovative public-private partnership. Mm-hmm. Our great partner on that, we had two. One was the Port of Portland. The other was the City of Portland. And uh, with our regional partners, uh, we were able to, I think, get that project done at a record pace um, with no federal funding. so That it, was a big one. It went very, very fast compared to the federal <laughs> processes that we have used, we were used it's to. It's amazing how that happens. And um, I think, uh, again, we were able to open that in 2001. And if I remember correctly, the economy wasn't good. And so the um, part of the appeal of that when construction was happening and when planning was happening was there was going to be a lot of uh, commercial uh, businesses uh, along the route. And that took a while to happen. Uh, Now you look at it and you see a key and you see all these shops and hotels and restaurants and whatnot. But that took how long between the opening and when things were active there? Well, just by way of stepping back just a moment, Mm -hmm. I noted we opened in 2001. 2001. That opening ceremony was on September 10th. Oh, 10th, that's right. I remember that. And so, obviously, 9-11 occurred the day after, uh, and immediately the alignment went into work 
but the work was not taking people to the airport necessarily. It was bringing people out of the airport into places where they could find lodging as the uh, aviation system shut down. That, as you, as many people recall, did cause a recession, mm-hmm. which then I think affected pretty deeply the real estate investment that was part of the overall uh, public-private partnership. But it probably took 10 years for the what now is known as Cascade Station to really build out. Uh, obviously, IKEA is one of the key places, but also now a number of office buildings and other things that were really are, are part of that. I think the other thing that was hard about that development is because of its location, it couldn't provide residential locations. Right. It was, it's not, it's a pure business location. And at the time, I think the more mixed environments were beginning to be favored by the marketplace. Um, but that said, uh, I think at this point in time, it's it's pretty, I think, uh, successful, uh, quite well planned, and yes. is obviously providing a great uh, resource to that. Part very vibrant. Yeah. Very vibrant. So 2001, that opens, and I, I remember that because at the time, I was producing the morning show here at Kink, and I went on that, and then the next day was September 11th. So the airport opens 2001. But at the same time as that was all happening, you had another project going on, and that was interstate. Exactly. And just to note, this isn't always a straight line in terms of the development. <laughs> no. there, there have been ups and downs associated with the light rail program over yeah. time. And one of the downs was, frankly, uh, a very narrow defeat at the ballot of a ballot measure that would have funded a much longer uh, north-south project from really Kenton and North Portland through downtown Portland down to Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had assembled, in addition to the Hope for Bond Fund, some other funding associated with uh, advancing the light rail. Uh, Ed Washington, who was the Metro Counselor for um, North Portland at the time, did a series of really interesting open houses where mm-hmm. he just went out to the voters and said, well, what do you want? You know, this failed. What should we do? And he heard a resounding call for doing the part of the light rail project that was in North Portland. And obviously, voter uh, results showed that the people in that part of the uh, region strongly supported the project. Mm-hmm. So that created an impetus, which was supported by then Mayor Vera Katz and uh, and others at at our regional government, Metro, uh, and TriMet to try to put together a project that served North Portland, and that was the Yellow Line. It also had the advantage that the federal government uh, was actually willing to, for lack of a the technical term, is overmatch, but pay more than fifty percent of the cost of the project largely because we had done the airport line all on our own. So uh, that allowed us to move that project. We innovated a number of things on the project, including what I think has become really a a hallmark of TriMet's construction projects, was a deep involvement of disadvantaged businesses, uh, businesses owned by uh, people of color and women, uh, and a a much more assertive uh, apprenticeship program, which we've only exceeded in terms of our goals and objectives for every project since that time. And I think that is one um, area, at least, that doesn't get as much, I'll use the term, airtime. When I worked there, I learned a lot about it uh, and about the success of the, it's called the DBE program. 
But as a citizen looking in, you don't realize all the folks that are working on these rail lines from construction to planning to what have you. We sort of took on at, with that project um, and frankly under the leadership then of then uh, General Manager Fred Hansen, really the notion that um, we are building the workforce of the future and we mm-hmm. are building the city of the future. So we needed to make sure that everyone was participating in that and that our workforce on that project looked like the city we were serving. You're listening to King's Portland 50 series. I'll continue my conversation with Neil McFarlane in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with Neil McFarlane, outgoing general manager at TriMet. So the construction on that had begun interstate yellow line. Yes. uh, Then opens in 2004. So that's quite a bit of activity from the opening of uh, the blue line in 98 to uh, red line in 2001 to 2004, the yellow line. And then you go a couple of years, and um, 2006 is when I joined TriMet. When I first joined as PIO, I had the opportunity, because we had a couple of PIOs there, to be in not necessarily the planning sessions, but meetings where things were talked about as far as planning, as far Mm -hmm. as where the alignment was going to go, where businesses were going to be helped, where businesses were going to be moved, and... That was, to me, one of the most fascinating parts of it, is the behind-the-scenes planning of these lines. So 2006 was pretty busy. The The construction begins on I-205 Portland Mall yep. and Wes. Yes. So tell me about those two projects. Well, so, um, you know, actually, it was, again, sort of following the notion of innovation. Um, the 205 project for TriMet was actually a design-build project, mm-hmm. much like the airport was where we uh, did some detailed planning with all the stakeholders, including the stakeholders include those within TriMet at that point in time who were operating this line and knew a lot about what would work and what wouldn't work. So um, we actually turned that project over to design build contractor and it went very well. Um, But obviously lots of negotiations with ODOT and with uh, the city and other, all the stakeholders along the way been quite successful uh, since then. Sometimes we're nothing but opportunists at TriMet, but one of the opportunities we had was that there was, if you will, credit on the table uh, with the federal government that we wanted to utilize. And that gave us the opportunity uh, to do what we knew we needed to do in the long term for this region, which was to extend light rail on the transit mall. So creating a different, a separate alignment in downtown Portland. So we attached to that Green Line project, the 5th and 6th Avenue project, worked very closely, not only with our riders, but also with the local property owners, developers, the city, many other stakeholders, and a really detailed and developed process to actually bring the light rail from Union Station up to PSU, uh, providing a whole series of new connections. And I think the result was not only bringing light rail on the mall, but it was a refresh and a redesign of the mall to really meet the demands of the business community and our riders um, for a new age. And from what I saw, the, the Portland Mall aspect of it was 
I don't want to say more complicated, complicated certainly in a different way, because you are moving through downtown. You are, I mean, we look at it now, and if anyone is just new to the area, you sort of take it for granted that you've got cars, which hadn't been on the mall, you've got buses, and you've got light rail, and a bike lane. And I remember being in a number of discussions uh, in a number of open houses where everything was talked about, safety, and how is this going to work, and... Again, we take it for granted now, but I remember all of the planning sessions for that. It was very complex uh, mm-hmm. because this was a, a, sort of the um, analogy is, um, you know, 10-pound sack, 15 pounds of potatoes, right? <laughs> so we wanted to really accommodate all those uh, modes on our two main transit spines in downtown Portland. And we finally came up with this, we called it the we. If you remember, Peggy, <laughs> it was this uh, weave between light rail trains and buses. And, of course, many people thought, well, you got to be nuts. How could that possibly happen? And what we did is a series of detailed models. And ultimately, I think what convinced everybody, including me, was a <laughs> visualization of that model and how it would work. So right. there are special signals for the buses. Yep. There are special signals for light rail. Light rail gets an advance. The buses hold until they see the back end of the train, and then they advance. So it's a very um, actually sophisticated signaling system, but also just a fairly simple rules for the operators to follow when they're downtown. The one, I guess, issue that sort of remains is that when people come from out of town, for, <laughs> for example, I see a lot of Idaho license plates, where they kind of don't get it and meander into the transit lanes, and uh, they are usually welcomed by a very loud honk yes. from a from a TriMet bus. Yes, they are. I know. I, I'll have somebody pull up beside me. I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't you gotta go go in front of me. Uh, so at the same time that construction's going on there, you have Wes, the commuter rail between. Oh, gosh, now I'm going to forget this. Between Beaverton and Tualatin. Tiger. It's actually between Wilsonville. Gosh, see? I, I'm gone a few years, and I totally forget Yeah, this. 14 and a half miles yeah. between Wilsonville and, and the Beaverton Transit Center. That was a project that was actually brought to TriMet from a consortium of local jurisdictions in Washington County. And they had this uh, underutilized uh, rail line that really was remarkably well located if you begin to think mm-hmm. about it. It serves downtown Tualatin, downtown Tigard. It's right across the street from Washington Square and it serves uh, downtown Beaverton. So uh, given the increased movement of cars up and down the 217 corridor, as we know it now, north-south in Washington County, uh, they were looking for an alternative that would help alleviate some congestion and provide people some other choices. So I, I think TriMet was a little suspicious when we first uh, began to talk about the project, but then um, it was, I think, as we got through it, we began to see that there was real benefit, and there was real benefit in maintaining this alignment over a period of time. And in, in addition, we were able to secure some good federal support for the project. So. So 2009 was a very big year yeah. for openings, uh, with starting with the West Project. Mm-hmm. and then um, That was uh, February. That was February. And then later in the year, we opened uh, the Green Line and the Portland Mall at the same time. Right. I do remember learning a lot about how the railroads companies think 
during that time. That was that was eye opening as well. That was eye opening for all of us involved. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, a new learning experience for how to deal with another stakeholder. Now, and to be honest with you, TriMet had worked with railroads in many other circumstances. Right. Just think about the steel bridge, which mm-hmm. is actually owned by the Union Pacific. So uh, those negotiations were not new to us, but it was a very different experience. It was a different experience. And then shortly before I left uh, was when planning and construction of what we now know as the Orange Line, Portland to Milwaukee, was shaping up. And that has been, I, I remember the complication of what, what is now the Telecom Crossing uh, and, and the building of that and the timing because there was only certain times where the posts could be put in uh, and the complication with that. So learning something new on that project as well. Uh, amazing uh, project and process yes. that I'm, you know, very, very proud of the outcome. Uh, one of the things many people forget, and there is a plaque to this effect on the bridge, is that the original chair of our advisory committee that focused on where the bridge should be and what it should look like was uh, former Mayor Vera Katz. Mm-hmm. With her help, we put together a group of stakeholders that included local property owners, architects in town, people who could represent the riders. So it was a very uh, mixed group, but an excellent group to work with. And we wa- walked through a very rational process. And uh, Mayor Katz was phenomenal, as she has always, always was, mm-hmm. associated with running a meeting. And uh, so she was able to get to a good result. And needless to say, aesthetics and what the bridge looked like was very important to her but the interesting thing about that process to me is how aesthetics and function merged mm-hmm. into the right solution for the right place in the region. You were mentioning some of the uh, difficulties of constructing it. Indeed, we have these in Portland. If you're going to work in the river, there's something called a fish window. Yep. Now, you cannot open that. That means <laughs> a calendar window. We used to uh, joke with people in the federal government in Washington, D.C., when we mentioned fish window as being critical to the timing of the project, and they would look at you sideways and say, what the heck is that? And so we'd have to explain that we have these no-go zones or times of year in the Willamette River because of the the salmon passing. Mm -hmm. So um, that became very critical to the timing of the project and the construction of it overall. So um, if we're going to get in the river, you have to get in. You have to plan your construction very carefully, get out, and keep everything on time and on schedule in order to actually achieve your objectives of uh, getting above the water level where there's a little bit more freedom of movement um, in that regard. And now we have the Telecom Crossing, the first multimodal bridge, uh, no cars. That was a big discussion, but it's a gorgeous bridge. I recommend walking over it. But you can bike, walk, take Max, take the bus, uh, just no cars. And the street? And the streetcar now. It is, I think it's one of the best crafted bridges around. And candidly, it was um, because of the time that we contracted for that. We also, I think, got a great deal on it in terms of its actual construction cost, which is around $135 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, We could not do that today. Yeah. But I think is a real icon and also one of the few earthquake-safe bridges across the Lamert River. Uh, and I think we'll all be very glad in the future that we've got that. That's key. That is key. So now we are 
2017, Portland ranks ninth per capita transit ridership, even though as far as population goes, we're probably 23, 24. 2017, TriMet provided nearly 99 million trips, which is absolutely amazing. You are about to retire. There's a new general manager coming in. I want to ask you whether it's when you were executive director of Capital Projects or as general manager, um, what innovations are you most proud of? And if there's anything you would have done differently on anything? Well, I would say, um, and I won't, I can't take personal credit for any of the innovations, but one of the key innovations uh, what I mentioned earlier was uh, low-floor light rail mm-hmm. vehicles. And I think that was instrumental not just in changing transportation and the view of transportation as a friendly place for people with disabilities in Portland, but that actually had national resonance. Hmm. And you would generally find that the notion of level boarding is now universal within the uh, transit community. So uh, in terms of rail construction. So I think that was transformative. I'm very, very proud of that and what it accomplished for us. I would also, um, just in terms of the uh, ability of this region to come together to make decisions to fund these projects, I think, has been really phenomenal. And it's very hard because there are a lot of stakeholders that push things in one slight direction or another for one reason or another, all good reasons, and mm-hmm. so it's always a matter of balancing that. But those um, things can make or break a project. They can make or break a project. Um, so we've been able to, with good support from our partners, to develop these projects with a, a great record of finishing on time and on budget, and that's been really important for us as we begin to think about the future and looking for partners to invest with us in the transit system going forward. It's not just a bragging right. It means something that all these uh, light rail projects have been done on time and on budget. Uh, It's a good track record to have. It's a great track record to have. And um, I make sort of my mantra related to the federal requirements that we follow as we do this is that we want to be the A student Mm -hmm. because we want to be a place that uh, is safe to invest and good to invest, and that the federal government, there are federal officials, see the results, the positive results. You mentioned the Tillicum Crossing. We are very proud that that was on the budget proposal for the U.S. DOT on the year it opened. We're even more proud about the development that's occurring around that bridge, particularly mm-hmm. in the South Waterfront area. No jobs and housing building really a great city for the future. Uh, that's exactly what we've always wanted to see at TriMet. It's phenomenal. A new general manager will take over soon. What do you think are his biggest challenges going forward? And what what's on the plate for TriMet? I mean, are there discussions of new projects going on? We just got news that they're talking about having a toll on both of the bridges. That's going to impact TriMet somewhere down the line. What's going on behind the scenes? Well, the conversations about the tolls, I think, illustrate that we have some real challenges in our region with growth and development. Those are good challenges to have, but much as we have in the past, it's going to require our region and our state to really step up to the transportation challenges that really keep us a a livable, vibrant community. Not just our state. Exactly. There's another state involved in, in part of this. And, and indeed, I think we see some interesting uh, conversations going on across the river now. 
with new elected leadership in Clark County, mm-hmm. um, and frankly, some demand, I think, from some of their commuters that the current situation isn't sustainable long-term. Yeah. I think we all know that. One of the things I was involved with earlier that has not been successful was, of course, the old Columbia River Crossing Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, there are some green sprouts showing about that core, the focus on that corridor, and the conversations are really, I think, just that right now about conversations and, and um, studies about whether or not there is a pricing mechanism that would help travel in that corridor is really a result of that. But there are lots of things on the horizon. Uh, one of the key things that we're working on is something called the Division Transit Project, and that would bring articulated buses back to Portland, 60-foot-long buses. It would treat the Division Corridor as a place where transit will be prioritized, so signals and queue jump lanes and, and better stops for riders would be part of that project. Our hope is that we can get that going in the short term. It's a project that is looking for federal match, so we'll be watching the federal budgets and all of those discussions as we uh, proceed. So we'll see where that that goes, but the hope is to have that actually in operation in about uh, 2021. And that's definitely needed in that area. Very, very busy corridor, yes. as we all know. The other project that we're working on is really the last radial corridor out of downtown, which is I-5 South to Tigard and Tualatin. So we are working with uh, Metro, who's the lead agency at this point in the study, on a planning effort to uh, see what light rail alignments make sense between Portland State University along Barber Boulevard and I-5 down ultimately to Tigard and Tualatin. And so that work is under underway. There will be a draft environmental impact statement actually published on that this spring. Okay. And so I would ask your listeners to pay attention to that and make sure that you have the opportunity to uh, offer your two cents on that. Um, in addition to that, we have other projects underway. One we have in the concept stage right now is some improvements to the red line that Mm -hmm. we talked about earlier running to the airport that would help speed the travel between the airport and downtown Mm -hmm. by removing some of the single track sections that are there now that were done for uh, cost effectiveness reasons when we first built it coming back and adding those second tracks including in the gateway area and also looking at ways to expedite travel through downtown Portland so those are all important projects The other important element for my successor will be recognizing where the system is related to age. We have uh, sections of track over the last few years. We've had some, you know, two, three-week shutdowns occasionally where we've needed to bus bridge around the section of track that needs to be replaced based on age. We'll also be advertising here soon for someone to build the replacements for our first 26 light rail vehicles, those high floor light rail mm-hmm. vehicles have served a long and yes. busy life here, but it's time for them to be replaced. The other thing that I think a lot of people don't recognize is that we are also on a very big bus expansion program at TriMet. Due to uh, assistance we've received from the state legislature, uh, as well as a payroll tax increase that was approved by the board a couple of years ago, We'll actually see when you combine that together about the bus system growing by something on the order of a third over a Mm. 10-year period. That will mean more bus garage capacity is needed as well as uh, all of the 
on-street amenities that go with new service. So that will be a combination of new lines, of increased frequency on existing lines, perhaps uh, using articulated buses on more than just the uh, division project I mentioned, um, and beginning to address some of the capacity needs and shortages that we have. Well, as a mostly bus rider, I welcome that. Good. Yes. We're also working with the city on a program we call Enhanced Transit, which is how do you move the buses through these queues of congestion that occur, particularly around the bridgeheads, and mm-hmm. so, but also elsewhere in the city. So we're continuing to work at ways of making the bus system much more effective for the citizens of the region. So your predecessor will not be bored is what you're trying to say. There's plenty of challenges <laughs> ahead. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad that you came in and that I got a chance to talk to you before you retire because I had a lot of fun working with you and your team. I mean, that's one thing that blew me away about uh, not coming from a transit side, not coming from from any of that background. There are a lot of smart people working at TriMet. It's a great team. Uh, there are all a bunch of innovators yeah. that continue to think about how to do it better every day. Yeah. Uh, and it's been just a, a, a kick to work with all those people over uh, 27 years. Again, I consider myself one of the luckiest people in the region, given the opportunities. I have a very happy retirement, and thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with Neil McFarlane. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website, kink.fm. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating Kink's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.